here and you would like, meet me down here at the front. Coming around. Yeah. Morning, guys. Come on around. Morning, person. There we go. Gather in. All right, so this morning, I'm going to name a few objects, okay? And I want you to raise your hand and tell me what each of these things that I'm going to say is used for, okay? Ready? First object, a shovel. What's a shovel used for? Digging, Digging right? Second object, a bucket. Okay, it does. You gotta raise your hand. I use buckets for carrying things that are heavy. Use buckets for carrying things that are heavy. You're exactly right. Third object, a window. Looking out onto the world without bugs flying in. Okay, so like you can look out of it, right? You look out and you don't have bugs flying on you. Fourth object, ready? A toaster. A toaster. It's in the name. Toasting. <laughs> Nailed it. All right, now, so here's what we're going to do. We're going we're gonna to change things just a little bit with each of our objects, all right? And I want you to tell me if this still works. What would happen if the shovel was made of noodles? No. Then you couldn't dig. Why couldn't you dig with it? Uh, because, because it would fall. You never heard of digging noodles? You could dig into it. You could dig into it, but could you dig with it? No. 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 You can't dig with a shovel made of noodles. So would it be a shovel still? No, right? That's what a shovel does. It digs. What would happen if your bucket had a giant hole in it and you couldn't carry stuff? What if you carry? It'd become a drop. Right, it would become a drop, not a bucket. You couldn't carry anything with it. If you couldn't carry anything with it, would it still be a bucket? No. No. You could tape it. You could tape it, but then you would have to, if you taped it, it would make it a bucket again. Right? What would happen if it were impossible to see out of your window? It was all boarded up. Would uh, it still be a window? No. It wouldn't be, be a window. It, it would be a wall. It would be a wall. I had a realtor one time tell me it was a permanently closed door. <laughs> I said, ma'am, that is a window. Um, what would happen if your toaster couldn't toast bread? Would it burn the bread or would it? It just couldn't toast it. It made it colder. Would it be a toaster? A freezer. It would be a freezer, right? We're not plugged in. Cold. Who wants freezing cold toast? Raise your hand. You're crazy. <laughs> so this is, this is kind of silly, but believe it or not, I think this is kind of the point that Jesus is making in our gospel text today. Jesus said that if salt isn't salty, then what on earth is it good for? Nothing. Looking good. He's, yeah, for snow, to throw it out to be trampled on. He said that if a light is hidden under a bucket, then is it light? Is no, it? It's no, it's darkness. Unless the bucket has a giant hole in it again. <laughs> Unless it's the bucket from the previous object, you're exactly right. <laughs> now, guys, what I want you to do today is I want you to listen to the sermon because I'm going to try to connect a few dots. Yes? Don't we technically put lights under cloth buckets? Cloth buckets? A lampshade. Oh, a lampshade. She's good. Back to your seats, guys. Cloth buckets. <laughs> Our gospel text can really be broken into two main sections. 
verses 13 through 16, and verses 17 through 20. The first section is very familiar to us. Jesus is talking about salt and light, like being a city on a hill, being shining examples to the world, and, and all of that kind of intuitively makes sense to us. I've seen countless church events that use the imagery from the first section, countless VBS and Sunday school curriculums that use salt and light as its basis and theme. But I don't think I've ever seen one single example of a curriculum focused on the second section. In verses 17 through 20, Jesus is talking about the law and the prophets. He's talking about iotas and dots, commandments and kingdoms, and he concludes the section by talking about the scribes and the Pharisees. Salt and light seem to be easy concepts to grasp, but what do we do with the second part? How does the second part of our gospel text connect with the first? Let's begin by exploring that very thing by asking a quick question. If I tell you that you are the salt of the earth and the light of the world, what exactly do I mean? You can safely assume that when I say that you are the salt of the earth, I don't mean that you're a mineral, right? When I say that you're light, I don't mean that you're some highly energized proton. But guys, that's exactly what salt and light are, right? So if you're salt but not a mineral, if you're light but you're not protons, then what in the world are you? And what could I possibly gain by naming you such things and then stripping them of their, of their meaning? This is kind of the problem that's posed to us in our gospel text. In verse 13 of Matthew uh, chapter 5, Christ clearly says to those that are listening, you are the salt of the earth. In the following verse, he tells those same people, you are the light of the world. And guys, Jesus isn't talking about minerals and physics. He's talking about something altogether different. See exactly what he means when you need to zoom out just a little bit and remember where we are in Scripture. You see, our gospel text takes place in the context of the Sermon on the Mount. You've probably heard of it. And Jesus begins that sermon with what we call the Beatitudes. Last week, Father Chris did a marvelous job of kind of piecing all of those together for us. And so I'm not going to go through all of that and rehash them in any detail this morning. But what I want to do this morning is to remember one simple idea about the Beatitudes. Whatever else the Beatitudes are, they are most certainly a description of the qualities of those who inhabit the kingdom. The Beatitudes are a description of what a kingdom citizen looks like. The Beatitudes are a summons, a summons for those who follow Jesus to live in a present way that may confound the present world, but makes perfect sense in God's promised future. The Beatitudes implicitly acknowledge that the powers of this world will reject Christ, that the rulers of this world will fight against Christ and anyone who follow him. The Beatitudes acknowledge every single bit of that openly. And if you can get your mind wrapped around all of that, if you can keep in focus that much of what Christ says in the Sermon on the Mount isn't benign at all, it's absolutely revolutionary. If you remember that the Sermon on the Mount is nothing short of a call for insurrection against the dark powers of this world. It's a call for a staunch resistance to be formed, a resistance that will look odd to the world because the people that Christ is forming look nothing like the world itself. If you can keep those things in focus, then when you get to our gospel text, you have a roadmap for understanding exactly what Christ is saying. When Jesus first issues the summons, 
and tells the people on that side of the mountain that they are salt and light. To whom is he speaking? He isn't speaking to a bunch of Gentiles in Texas. When Jesus preaches this sermon, he is speaking to a thoroughly Jewish audience. And as he preached, some of this would have sounded familiar. God had referred to Israel as salt and light before. Salt and light is what God had always called Israel to be. But instead of being like salt, instead of being distinctive and set apart, Israel was behaving like everyone else. Israel was full of factions, squabbling for power and clout. It was rife with militant revolutionaries, ready to pounce as soon as Rome showed the very first sign of weakness. But how could God keep the world from going bad if Israel, his chosen people, his chosen salt, had lost its distinctive flavor and become like everyone else? That is the question Jesus asks in today's text. And as Jesus, God in the flesh, physically sat on that mountain, he was calling on the Israel of his day to be the Israel he always intended them to be. He was calling Israel back to what it should have been all along, the salt of the earth for the sake of the world. And in the same exact way, Jesus called them to be the light of the world. Israel was supposed to be the people through whom God was shown. God had intended to shine the light of his life through his chosen people of Israel into every dark corner, into every evil stronghold. But instead of being the conduit through which this light was shown, Israel itself was stumbling in the darkness. Those who were called to be light bearers were now a part of the darkness for which they existed to remedy. Jerusalem, a city set on a literal hill, was supposed to be a beacon to the world, a beacon through which God called all of those in darkness to step into the light. But instead of being a beacon of light, Jerusalem was no different from any other city on any other hill. Its streets were full of murder and robbery. Its temples ceased to honor God. Its priests were full of conceit and devoid of the Spirit. And this is where I think these two sections. This is the place where the second part of our gospel text fits perfectly with the first. The strong critique that Jesus gave Israel wasn't a sign that he was breaking from Israel's past. No. In verse 17, Jesus makes it abundantly clear that it wasn't his intention to abandon the law or the prophets. He wasn't abandoning Israel. As a matter of fact, instead of abandoning them, Jesus had come to fulfill everything they should have been. Jesus had come to replay Israel's entire story. Every command that was given to them, every promise that was made to them, were now all going to come true in Christ. And in Christ's fulfillment of all that God had intended, light would now shine in the darkest places in Israel and throughout the entire world. What Jesus is saying in our text is a truly revolutionary set of statements. Jesus was himself the salt of the earth. He was himself the light of the world. He was himself set atop a hill and crucified for everyone to see. He was a beacon of hope and new life for every single person locked in darkness. 
He was drawing people to worship his father as their father. He was embodying the way of self-giving love, which is the deepest fulfillment of the law and the prophets themselves. And while it's true that he said all of this to Israel first, while it's true that, that sitting on the side of that mountain, his summons was heard by Jewish ears only, that is the case no longer. These sayings that were originally applied to Israel now apply to other people on this side of Pentecost. They apply to anyone who follows Jesus. They apply to all those who draw on his life as a source of their own. My friends, you are the salt of the earth. My friends, you are the light of the world. It is through you by the Spirit that the Son of the Father is imaged in this dark, dark world. That is the summons Jesus made to Israel in the Sermon on the Mount, and that is the sermon, summons that he makes to you today. And yes, living in stark contrast to the world may draw the attention and the scorn of the world. But the distinctiveness found in following Jesus, the distinctiveness that draws the malice of the world, is itself a blessing. Because it's only by being salt. It's only by salt being salt. It's only by light being light that a perishing world trapped in darkness has any hope at all. And Christ has left His Spirit on earth with us to do exactly that. Christ wishes to fill those who call Him Lord with the life and light of God Himself. And living a light, life that distinctive in this world may turn a few heads, it may raise a few eyebrows, but guys, then again, distinctiveness kind of seems to be the point. Amen.